to me, good garbage would be no garbage. But what I mean by that is that every time you had something in your hand that you were done with, that it would go, it would become something useful. And so if that was an apple core, it would go into a compost and enrich the soils. And if that was like a piece of paper, then it would become a piece of paper in its next life. Like that everything that was at its end of its useful, truly useful life, we would look at and think, what are the resources within this item and how should they be best utilized in its next life? Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Today we get to speak with Saloni Doshi, the chief sustainability geek of Equinclose, a company focused on providing eco-friendly shipping supplies. What impressed me most in our research and the conversation is the purity of intent that Saloni and her team comes with. There is so much thought that goes into each product that they carry and they work towards lowering our impact. Another aspect that is evident is transparency. They inform what they know and admit what they don't. As you listen, you will feel the passion and purpose that makes Saloni's energy so infectious. Enjoy the conversation. I'm super excited to have Saloni Doshi, the CEO and Chief Sustainability Geek of Eco and Close. Uh, this is a company that is doing so much work uh, to change the e-commerce packaging, and they have such a big range of products uh, on their website, and just so much uh, consciousness around uh, what is being done. So I'm I'm super excited to talk to you, Saloni. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited as well. Uh, great, Saloni. So I'm going to take a step back and talk to you more about Saloni, the person. Uh, tell us more about your growing up years and if there were any influences at that stage that impacted your thinking now in terms of packaging or a cleaner planet uh, around that domain, if you, can, if you can think of some incidences that might have caused what you do now. Yeah, well, let's go way back. I love it. Um, yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey um, to, uh, you know, to immigrant parents from India. And, you know, I think it's really interesting, right? I think anybody who's born or raised to immigrant parents, especially Indian parents, knows that, like, the the pressure is really to focus on, like, medicine, engineering, banking, things like that. Um, and that's sort of probably where mentally I was headed. I was very mathematically oriented, statistics oriented growing up. And then um, two things probably happened that sort of changed my trajectory. One is um, my parents, I begged and pleaded, and then they sent me on a really long hour bounds expedition when I was um, early in high school. And I got to spend several weeks, three weeks um, in the Appalachian Mountains, just like hiking, backpacking, being outdoors. And we had this 36 night, 36 hour alone, like isolation period in that outward bounce trip. And I that's probably where I like fell in love with nature and was sort of surrounded by deep environmentalists that I hadn't been growing up. So that happened. And then the year after I had the chance to go to India actually and build a library um, in a slum behind IIT in Delhi. And those two experiences, I think at an early age, helped me sort of become passionate about nature and then also become like passionate about social justice. 
Um, and then, you know, that thread, I would say, like carried me throughout my career. So I went to college um, and then after college, I actually went into strategic management consulting because I do love business. I love numbers. I love strategy. And then sort of after that, sort of migrated my way through a variety of, I went to Teach for America for a little while, working in education and strategy. And then I worked in sustainable agriculture, healthy food access, and found myself here. So I think my those two experiences create an intersection in my life of business and social and environmental justice. And how do you intersect the two to create change? Uh, tell us more about how Eco and Close came about. I know it was formed a few years back uh, by somebody called uh, Aaron Kimet. And, um, you know, how did you come around to thinking that, okay, I need to become part of this, take this company and make it something way bigger than what was conceived and what it was when you took over? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you said, Erin Kimmett started it. She was she started a company called Thirsties, which was a cloth diaper company. And when she was trying to ship her cloth diapers like 10 years ago, there was nothing sustainable to ship them in. So for her, it was really um, born out of necessity. And I would say after she had to hire a couple people, she became very she she recognized the fact that she was not interested in building and growing a sustainable packaging business. So she she decided to sell Eco and Close when it was just a couple people big. Um, at, at the same time, my husband and I were living in Colorado. I was working in sustainable agriculture, helping farms transition from monocrop production to organic um, organic uh, regenerative agriculture. And um, he was actually actively looking for a business to buy. And so it just happened to be that we crossed paths with Aaron, found out about Eco and Close. And I think for Kyle, who's my husband, Eco and Close was like a magic, like it's a sort of beautiful opportunity because it was values oriented and it had a, like a really strong ability to scale. And then I don't think at that point I was, I wasn't excited to buy a business. I was really happy in my job, but because it was Eco and Close, it was very clear to me that this was, it was kismet almost to find it, right? Because this was the intersection of us being able to support businesses and support sustainability and support innovation. Fascinating. I'm going to take a segue. Uh, so what is it like to work together as a couple? <laughs> have you guys have you guys managed to make clear distinctions on roles? And, you know, well, what's the choice? Do you bring all the conversation to the dining table? How does that work? Yeah, um, it's a great question. We've got three kids as well. We um, I was pregnant with our second when we bought the company and then I had my third while we had Eco and Close. And so that's just an added hiccup, I guess, or dimension to it all. Yeah, honestly, um, it is the most rewarding thing I could ever imagine to run it with him. Um, we actually met in undergrad, and then we also went to business school together. Um, so we have had a lot of overlap in our education. This is the first time we're overlapping professionally. And here's what a couple of tricks for anybody out there who is married running a business, because it's not uncommon, right, for married people to run businesses together. I think we actually communicate all the time about business. Like we've stopped pretending that there's, um, yeah, that there's like a boundary. There are times where we're like, let's have this moment to not talk about ego clothes or let's have this moment to not talk about the kids. But we do talk about it all the time. And um, we... Oh, let's see. There are, we, there's, you know, there are time right now, right? We're in economic uncertainty. And so the rule is if we're talking about it outside of work, we're not talking about the stressful, sort of depressing parts of it or harder parts of it. We're talking about strategy. We're talking about vision. We're talking about things that uplift us. 
we try to create moments during the day where meetings where we're like, okay, we are in a potentially in a recession. What does that mean for how do we run the business? We try to do that in really distinct periods of time, but we don't let anything. The other thing that we have done recently, which um, really helped us, is we hired a coach that is able to help us as a couple run the business. And so she has really been amazing at saying, okay, Kyle, this is how you respond to Saloni when your business is in stress. Saloni, this is how you respond to Kyle when your business is in stress. And she's given us the language to navigate what used to be really emotional ups and downs for us. Um, so that's been a big win. Um, and then I think the other thing I'll just say is a real win is that we, um, we are really open with our company, like our team. It, I think they have benefited a lot from us as a married couple running the business because we're sort of like we bring a little bit of our personal life into work and and I think that they really feel like this is a real family environment. It's created a really warm and wonderful culture at Eco Enclosed because we're pretty open about our marriage and our life with them. And I think that they really appreciate that. Super. And I am going to pick your brains a little more on culture. I was listening to another uh, kind of uh, recording that you did and that was fascinating. So I'm going to take that towards the end though. Uh, but I want to switch towards uh, the work that you're doing at Eco Enclose. It's so valuable. And uh, I think you were relatively early, I would say, even if it's 2015, when people were not realizing the kind of impact uh, the e-commerce packaging was having. You know, there were these huge, well, they still are, but better and better every day. But, uh, you know, huge boxes with so much packaging. Yeah. And there you were, you know, you came in with a variety of offerings which were all really well thought of. Uh, so it'll be great to learn about uh, the products, the journey of how Eco and Close has evolved from the time you guys took it over to what it looks like now. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I think that when we first started Eco and Close, the, the challenges that we were having were, hey, how do I convince brand X that sustainability matters in this space? that like that the decisions that they're making matter for the planet and actually that their customers care about it. And so that was the type of dialogue that we're having. I think today, 99% of brands out there, D2C brands out there, recognize that this is important. They need to, now the challenge is, A, can they afford, quote unquote, can they afford the, the perception is that sustainable packaging is going to be a lot more expensive. So they're sort of grappling with, like, can I afford to do this? And then I think the second other, the question is, what counts as sustainability? So, you know, we were having very nascent conversations, and now we're having much more nuanced, complicated conversations with folks, which is really exciting. Um, because we get to go into that level. I think the other thing that's interesting today is that because sustainability is like a much more sort of hot word, there's just a lot of, um, there's some really great competition on the market. And then there's a lot of, I would say, watered down competition on the market. And so that's creating a, um, like a dialogue around sustainability where you're navigating. I mean, a very basic example of this is, um, you know, we'll get a lot of calls from people that's like, hey, I just need curbside recyclable packaging. That's all I need. And our response is, listen, that can't even be that that's like the very tip of the iceberg when it comes to sustainability. Let's think about where is your packaging coming from? Is it made with recycled content? If it's not made with recycled content, you know, what trees are getting cut down to make your packaging, et cetera. And so we're sort of having to say, okay, I know that the tip of the iceberg is all that other people have told you important, and maybe that's all your leadership cares about. But if you care about sustainability at a deeper level, can we start talking about the nuances um, behind this? 
Um, so that's, I think, the evolution of sustainable packaging and that we've had. And it's been a really fun one because now we get to go like really geeky on the conversations that we have. Um, but it does make, honestly, like winning business more challenging because you're fighting with more again, complicated factors and it's just a little bit harder to close the deal. I think what I see is that you carry a huge range of products and uh, that should enable. So if I go to a customer and I give them the entire offering, there's a higher chance of uh, them sort of uh, <clears throat> one coming coming with that business and also probably staying with that business. Uh, but an overlap question with that, how do you manage that inventory? You know, Because there are so many different products that you have. Uh, and so talk to me a little more about this range of products, offerings, and then management of inventory. Yeah. Um, so I guess the range of products is a really good question. Um, we, the range of products, I will first say, is that I think it is great because we recognize that there's thousands of different types of businesses out there, and some need to ship in boxes, and some need to ship in mailers, and different people need different strengths and functionality profiles. So what we say is that every single product that we offer, we've tried to develop it as much as possible to meet our sustainability framework. And so the idea is that like once you've found us, hopefully you don't need to be vetting between our offerings from a sustainability lens. You can just now pick from a functional lens. Um, I think our customers might say, and frankly, even our non-customers might say that variety of offerings makes it even a little bit more complicated to work with us because it's a little easier when you go to one company and they're like, this particular solution is a silver bullet to all things sustainability, just do get this. And when you come to Eco and Close, it's like we're going to first say nothing that we sell is perfectly sustainable. All of it has its drawbacks. I'm going to talk to you about the trade-offs and help you make the right decision. But it makes it a little bit more complicated, even though we think it's better for the planet. Um, in terms of managing that range of inventory, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's challenging um, just to carry that inventory. It's challenging from a cash perspective, right? Because it means that a lot of money is tied up in inventory and we're a self-funded business. So that's really um, has had a month of inventory just to manage the supply chain spikes and, and issues. Um, in terms of um, how do we, the other thing that we find challenging is like, how do you educate our team internally? Because when we actually just hired somebody today on our customer success team, for example, and she she started, sorry, today, and she just like realizing you have to train her on like 200 different products. That's a lot for an individual in our team to understand. And what we've realized is like, it's going to take you six months new hire to be able to have a really good conversation with the customer to help them between our options. Um, and so I think that that has made things challenging. But what it does mean is if you stay with us for a year, you really know your stuff when it comes to packaging and you can help anybody through anything. So, you know, the learning curve is steep. And then once once you're there and once our customers are there, our ability to work together is so deep because we can do so much for our brands. And I, I truly find the honesty that comes across uh, through the website, especially really endearing. You know, you are literally like what you said right now, there is no such thing as absolute sustainable kind of packaging. And that's yeah. a really honest thing to say when you, uh, when you're actually trying to sell something. Um, but that sort of ties in really well with another thing you mentioned in passing was your sustainable packaging framework. And that's really interesting that you've created this framework of, you know, what is what is what is what and, you know, what is good and what yeah. is not. So it'll be great to uh, for the listeners to learn more about that and how you go about judging whether the product meets the cut or not. Yeah, great question. And I'm going to preface this by saying, like, this is our framework. I have no judgment on other people's frameworks. 
Um, so, but, but I want to be feeling really good about what we offer. And so uh, we've focused a lot on the, our idea that for e-commerce packaging, it should be our, our vision. It starts with a vision, which is, okay, in 10 years, what would e-commerce packaging ideally look like? What would it mean for it to be truly sustainable? And what we've decided for us, based on a lot of research, is that we think that it means that it should be circular. So we always say packaging should be made before it's literally unusable. And then ideally it becomes recycled back into itself. And so that's the ideal. And then if we just assume that no matter what virgin materials will have to enter the stream at some point, the ideal is that the virgin inputs are um, at a minimum net neutral for the planet and at an ideal are sort of regenerating soils and making waterways healthier, making people healthier, et cetera. And so that's the like that's the duality of our vision, which is circularity, packaging is made out of packaging, and when virgin inputs are needed, that they're made in net neutral or regenerative ways. And so that's our vision. And then we've said, okay, well, we've got 10 questions that we ask of us, right? That vision is a pipe, not not pipe dream. It's like a faraway dream right now. But we say every step we make to make our packaging better, how do we get it closer and closer to that vision? So, you know, there's 10 questions. I'll just share some of the bigger ones. Um, the first one is, is it made with as much post-consumer waste as possible? Um, because if you want to make packaging out of packaging, you've got to be able to say, hey, right now we're putting as much post-consumer waste and recycled content in our packaging as possible. The second question we ask is, can it be readily recyclable? Um, and if it can't, then that's a real problem for us. So those are like the two big questions we ask. And then on the can it be recycled, we're starting to also say, can it be reused? So e-commerce, unlike the grocery store where you buy your pack, you know, you have a bag and you can keep bringing your own bag time and again, reusable has a little bit more drawback in the e-commerce space because once an end consumer gets it, they've got to do something with it, they've got to get it back. So there's a footprint associated with reusability. Um, but we started to add reusability that lends to our framework. Um, and then the third thing is um, beyond just recycled content or recyclability, what is its broader impact on what we call like the nine planetary boundary? So how is it impacting carbon? How is it impacting our waterways? How is it impacting biodiversity? Um, so those are the three, I would say, main questions that we ask about our packaging. And then there's a host of, I would say, subsidiary questions, which is like, uh, is it using as little material as possible? Um, or is everybody across the supply chain being paid ethically? Do we have transparency into how they're being treated? Um, so there's a host of other nuanced questions, but those are the three that like really drive us forward. And I could see it was really well thought of. In fact, it was educational for me. I've been in the segment for what, 23, 24 years now. Uh, but even even like the lens that you had put in there was really educational, particularly from one perspective that I've had growing up and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So I grew up in India and uh, and in a, in a pulp and paper packaging environment, that's what my father did. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I found really challenging and as I grew and grew into the business uh, was this whole idea of recycling because it was such a big thing and everybody was talking about it. But what I saw was there was uh, waste paper or waste plastic being collected all the way in the United States, uh, you know, sh shipped inland, then eventually shipped across the world to a port in the west of India, uh, taken the taken and then shipped inland somewhere to a recycling mill. Um, it recovered about fifty percent, uh, typically at a, on a, on a, a if it's a decent uh, material. Uh, it would yeah. create a lot of waste, and of course, you mentioned somewhere about China banning, and that was the whole deal there. Uh, it created a lot of waste, 
and what was produced from that used maybe 70 to 80% of the energy that would have been used in a virgin material. And then it was downcycled. It was never recycled because, you know, you create, you can only sort of downcycle that many times. Um, and then I saw, on the other hand, uh, virgin materials, at least in India, all the there was no forest uh, that was being cut. It was always social forestry. So, so people were enhancing the forest cover by enabling farmers to grow trees that's it you know the trees were eucalyptus and things like that not not the best variety of or not very diverse kind of uh it was more monoculture kind of trees but okay at least the forest cover grew and then of course uh, there was more being gone than cut uh every and, and and like you mentioned very honestly everything has an impact so that had an impact and recycling had an impact but i really got got um, I would say a little bit uh, not so much in favor of recycling when it came to that, but I just I, it was educational for me because I saw not only were you looking at recycling being an option, but one of the things in the 10 that you did not mention was that you were also looking at how closely it was recycled. So, so that was interesting. But what is your take on this? I would love to hear your point of view. And I'm sure this is some. This is an argument you've come across uh, before, and what you think about it would be great for my learning personally. Yeah, I mean, I think the the danger is that uh, there's been a bizarre. Well, I would say not bizarre, but there's been a, like a an interesting dichotomy almost where people are like, well, recycling is bad, which is different from recycling isn't perfect. And that's the fear that I have, right? Where you, you start to see messages out there that's like, don't, you know, recycling is bad and it's encouraging all of these people to not recycle. Um, and so that's like, that's a little bit scary when I hear that. So I'll say to me, if you have, let's just like, if you have a box and that box was made with whatever it was made of, recycled fiber or virgin fiber, inherent in that box is all of the resources that have gone into its creation. So potentially a tree was cut down, all of the energy was used, and it was made. The idea that it would do anything but ideally become something else useful in its next life, I can't even get, I wouldn't be able to argue in favor of anything else, but hey, let's make sure that after this is reused as many times as possible, let's make sure this becomes something useful in its next life, right? So to landfill it or even to compost it like wouldn't make sense because there are natural resources in that box that we want to get used. And so that's where I, that's the lens I come to recycling in, um, which is, hey, if we're going to have a bunch of things going into the garbage, they represent resources. And the most efficient thing we as a society can do is reuse those resources before eventually you're right, in our current technology, it gets downcycled. Let's make sure it gets downcycled as many times as possible before ultimately is, is, is gone away. So that's the lens that I come at it with. And the only way to make that reality work and to make recycling as effective as possible is if all of us are buying recycled content. And that impact um, and, and I'll say, like, the, if you think about how much recycling has grown up in the last 15, 20 years, I mean, it's tremendous, right? The, the machinery that's been invested in sorting facilities and the MRFs, the ability to um, clean. So it used to be that paper could only be recycled like three to five times. Our cleaning and screening technology is so much better now that now it can be used five to seven times. So you can just see, and all of that is because companies have made corporate commitments to recycled content, and those corporate commitments have then funded our collective ability to recycle. And so I think 
I think it, we should acknowledge the fact that recycling is far from perfect. We're very far from the circular vision that I have for the future, but the only are all in into this idea of circularity, buying recycled material, actually encouraging recycling, and all of a sudden we're, we're going to start to make the investments to get closer to it. Then you're right. There is no world in which we're not going to need virgin inputs that go into that material. And so, again, I really focus a lot on, like, we're going to have to be cutting down trees to make virgin paper in order to make to even have recycled content. Let's make sure that those trees, you know, ideally aren't eucalyptus trees, that they're actually, you know, and that they, that we're, you know, ideally not cutting down any trees from our boreal forests and our ancient forestry, which unfortunately we're cutting down at really high rates right now. So we need a balance of both of those two things. Um, I believe e-commerce is really well positioned to be a user of recycled content, so I really want to go first there. But we're also doing really exciting work in the virgin paper space, uh, focusing on next-gen agricultural waste fibers, uh, making, you know, supporting efforts to make sure that we're protecting ancient and endangered forests, etc. So I do recognize the need for virgin inputs and making sure that those are done really well. Yeah, and that's just, just amazing, amazing for me to uh, see. So the other, the other struggle, the other end of the struggle that I come up with, and I, I, I struggle with, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, is that uh, for me, again, maybe as a student of uh, nature, ecology, biomimicry, and that kind of domain, uh, I've always felt the upcycling bit is that everything composts and go back to the planet. But you rightly so talk about where are the composting facilities and, you know, why, why, should, uh, why should something not be rotated many times around before sort of it goes and becomes compost. So that's a struggle for me. And what the, the struggle has been that, you know, every, every, there's so many cogs in this wheel and everybody has their own dharma. So I feel, you know, like we create more and more compostable packaging in the hope that somebody else will see that market and create more and more composting facilities. And of course, you mentioned it somewhere, it's more complex than it seems. You know, the MRFs many times may not want to take compostable packaging, but it'll be great to get your perspective on this idea that if we were to create more and more compostable packaging, there would be composters that will come, knowing very well that everybody's not going to start home composting. So we will need industrial composting sites at some point to grow. But how do you think about it? And what is your point of view there? Yeah. Oh, God, I have so many thoughts. I'm just going to share a couple. Um, I think first I would say that I think most environmentalists and packaging experts would agree that in a hierarchy, you would prefer to recycle something as many times as possible before that material gets composted. Because again, if you've already put natural resources into the creation of something, you want to make sure that those resources get are effectively utilized as many times as possible before it quote unquote goes back to the soil. Um, the cycle, right? Like the cycle of actually like reusing those resources is much tighter and much more efficient than um, what composting is. So I start from that lens, which um, is really important. I think the second lens um, that I start from is that composting, and again, I have a career in sustainable agriculture. I'm an avid composter at home, an avid gardener, and I'm on the board of our local uh, waste management provider and oversee their composting um, and recycling facility. So I'm the eco-cycle is that composting exists as a place for organic waste. So it is really important that our food waste, that our yard waste, all of that have get composted because it's going to enrich our soils. It's you know exactly what our soils need. And when that stuff goes to the landfill, it creates methane. 
And so I start with that lens of like great composters need that output. What we've actually found is that the uh, bringing in of synthetic materials, so like the bioplastics and things, is very degrading to compost. That's not what compost is for. Compost is for your apple core, not for your, you know, your PLA bioplastic. And so what I don't want to see is that these, I want these composting facilities to rise up across our entire country and be outputs for organic waste and actually create high quality compost that makes farmers better, that makes our soils better. When you start to bring in synthetic inputs, that actually degrades the quality of the compost and isn't great. And so that's, again, another lens I come from, which is when once man has synthetically created a material, I don't believe it should be designed for composting unless it can really be proven not just to go away, and I put that in quotes, but to enrich. And most compostable bioplastics don't actually enrich. They just maybe pass the test of going away, which that test is the 90% or more of the material is gone. Um, so that's the other lens. And then finally, I would say, I think, um, so I think that when I think about compostable packaging or naturally biodegradable packaging, that's where I really go to natural fibers. So I don't think that the, you know, I don't love the commitment or the interest in bioplastics unless we can create a bioplastic that is enriching to soils. But, you know, what's interesting I think about is paper, which is like there are, there is a world in which you might have some natural fibers, mushroom packaging, like there's some interesting um, elements of, uh, or interesting materials whose end of life could be composting and could actually be enriching to it. So I think those those brands out there that are very committed, like I really think compostability is right for me, I de generally drive them to the natural fibers that could be enriching to the compost at the end of its life, if that, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And it's extremely well thought of, which is, which is interesting for me as well as yeah. I'm sure the listeners who will be listening to this to understand the nuances uh, that go with it. And of course, I'm, I'm personally very happy that paper is still considered to be uh, compostable and we make a decent amount of paper from agri uh, waste. Uh, but um, when it comes to sourcing, because you're so particular about the products that you put out and you clearly see them from a stringent uh, lens and, and, and make sure that what you're offering is as close to sustainable as possible. Uh, so how difficult or easy is it to get the right materials? And you know, I'm sure you have a pipeline that you want materials in this kind of application. Uh, how do you go about sourcing and how do you go about identifying and then you know, qualifying uh, whether they meet the cut or not. Yeah, I think you're, most people would sort of first go to the lens of certifications. And what we found is that certifications are appropriate in certain environments, but they're a little bit prohibitive in a lot of other environments. And so um, with that lens, you know, okay, so let's look at paper when we've talked about, okay, well, if it's virgin paper, we really want to make sure that it's FSC certified and that it doesn't draw from ancient endangered forests. And so that's that's the certificate. That's where we see certification as being critical. When it comes to recycled paper, oftentimes what we'll do is instead connect with everybody in the supply chain. So we'll make sure that the mill gives us paperwork, the converter gives us paperwork, and everybody in between gives us paperwork that says this is 100% recycled or 90% recycled, made with X amount of post-consumer waste. Um, and so it, like a lot of supply chain documentation is what we focus on. Um, and then you asked a little bit about supply. I mean, I think you're probably more familiar with this than I am, but, you know, I think the, the supply of recycled content has been wonky for the last three years, and it's been a real problem, actually. You know, a year and a half ago, 
the challenge of getting 100% recycled paper was real. Um, you know, our prices skyrocketed, or the you know, the, our costs skyrocketed as a result, and the cost of every business in the, in the world skyrocketed. Um, and there were instances where some of our larger customers, we had to say, okay, well, we've got to be 85% recycled just because I can't get this material for you. Um, and, and today, actually, we're struggling with um, not a supply, but a quality issue with our polyethylene. So the market for uh, poly recycled polyethylene is skyrocketed. I mean, right now, if you want to buy a recycled H2PE, it's 3x the cost of what it was like several years ago, a demand that's going to fuel people to actually recycle their H2PE. So in some ways, you're like, oh, that's an, an environmental win, but it's a huge challenge for our business. Um, and it means like uh, our latest run of one of our products had a lower quality to it because the recycled inputs going into it were lower quality. So, so I think I'm not from answering your question, but we certainly, especially when you work with recycled content, you just deal with these like ups and downs of volatile pricing as well as volatile quality. And in some ways, we rely a little bit on our brand community to say like, that's okay. We're here to buy your recycled content and we can do, we're okay with some of these inconsistencies in color or inconsistencies in gelling or, or something like that in order to make this sort of sustainable movement work. We would like to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Good Garbage is sponsored by PACA, a family of brands that produces compostable packaging and works to implement regenerative solutions. PACA's new project is to bring compostable food service ware and food carry products to North American marketplace. Learn more at PACA.com. Now back to the conversation. So two things more on products. You know, there are there is... Um, a stark statement uh, I read somewhere, which is refuse to work with corn. I would love to learn more about, you know, what what is thinking behind that? Because, of course, you know, I've come across very interesting products, again, starch based bioplastics, but sometimes they are even third grade starch, uh, which disintegrates well. Uh, but again, it is it is engineered. So I, I get your point of view, and I want to understand more about uh, the, the the clear thinking there. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to add one more question before you respond. Okay. And the other one is, uh, I, I saw that you know some products went through your test, and uh, then products from cassava and cellulose didn't make the cut. So so you know just just that idea around you know what what because you are looking at products every day. So it's very interesting for me, and I'm sure others yeah, to hear. Yeah about what you're finding and what is enabling that tough uh, decision from your end, because I'm sure it's not easy because there is a product available, it does the job, but your, your lens uh, of sustainability uh, is not matched and you have to take that tough call. So love to hear your thoughts behind that. Oh, yeah. Good question. And I'll, I'll, you made the comment about cellulose. We actually do have a cellulose product. It's our tape. And so there are certain applications where yeah, so I do, uh, like, so it's like the intersection of the, the material and the application, and is this the best to do the job? So, um, but corn is a really good example because I will say one thing that probably is important about eco-inclus is that I think consumers and brands, frankly, have taken in some ways an oversized emphasis on M end of life as the most important attribute of packaging. And so that sometimes I personally think, again, we can, like, I'm not saying everybody has to agree, but my personal sense when I talk to brands is that because they view this as the most important attribute of their package, it's leading them to not be thinking about all of the 
far more ecologically important upstream impacts. And so typically I'll say when people come to me and they say, hey, I want a corn package, it is purely driven from end of life. You know, maybe it's a dissolving corn, a dissolving cornstarch peanuts, or um, maybe it's uh, compostability. And so even leaving aside the fact that Personally, for me personally, I don't think that composting and dissolving are the right end of life. Even if you just put that aside, let's say we were like, yes, we both want to compost the package. I think the issues with corn are, are all upstream. And so what, you know, what we found, and I have some articles about this, like what we found is that it is true that anytime we as a planet have tried to replace fossil fuels with corn, we have actually damaged the planet more than had we not done that to begin with. And it doesn't have anything to do with the downstream impact. So, you know, in the, in the 80s, like the U.S. said, like, we're going to start prioritizing corn ethanol. And the research now shows that that commitment has actually led to a higher amount of carbon emissions than had we never made that commitment to begin with. And the reason is that um, corn is um, really just the the land, right, when you take land and you convert it into corn crop production, you uh, release so much carbon into the atmosphere, and that carbon release has actually become, again, a net, it's been a net damaging to the planet to make the ethanol commitments. Um, and then, of course, I talked about the nine planetary boundaries, right? There's so many different factors, and nitrogen, phosphorus runoff, ocean acidification, soil health, um, flood damage, like all of that stuff is exacerbated by our sort of our countries and our world's like obsession with corn production and so I get like that uh, this is all come from my sustainable agriculture background I get this like gut reaction when people are like well we're just going to look at corn as the silver bullet and I think again they're coming from this really well-intentioned lens that is entirely focused on end of life and I really try to pull back the conversation and say like let's talk about the crops sort of beginning of life impact and is this where we want to go and actually recent studies have shown that um, to create the a, a calorie, let's say, of corn, like 80% of that energy is actually fueled by fossil fuels today because of how fossil fuel intensive corn production is. So when you start to really get into the weeds of everything upstream, you realize that certain crops just don't make sense as a plastic replacement. And um, and that's why I really encourage folks to look at that big picture, the whole life cycle. And and, and like you've said, uh, and then said and not said, it's always about lesser of the two <laughs> evils. So, so, of course, I come more from the cellulosic space and there is enough damage that uh, dissolving pulp does. Right. So. So, you know, so even if yeah. it's ag pulp. Uh, you're taking, you're yeah, talking about totally. 20% yields, 80% is lost. Well, not 80%, yeah. but 50% because 50% is moisture. Uh, but 50% of the fiber is lost in the process. And it's a harsh process. You know, any viscose fiber, yeah, any rayon grade pulp totally. that is created. Uh, and that it's the same pulp that leads to cellulosic film. And that's why the costs are so much higher. Uh, because, you know, you can't so get Futamura to reduce their costs like maybe they can play around 20% more, but that's it because because that's the base but level yeah, yeah. pricing and that's the challenge. And of course, you know, while we were growing up, we called it cellophane because it was created from cellulosic film. So, but yeah, it's it's always a, um, it's, it's always a throw up, you know, what, what do you go for? And I can see your kind of thinking okay. around that as well. You have to choose one of them. They are all going to have an impact. In fact, I always say there is no such thing as an eco-friendly industry. So, so as soon as there yeah, is industry, exactly. you're going to use energy and water. And, and so, you know, there will be some impact. How do you lower the impact is the question. One of the things that I want to, again, pick your brains on is, again, taking a cue from the corn argument and the, the, the supply side of it, 
how do you how do you think about the petroleum side again it's a fossil fuel it's limited it has its own consequences when you take polyethylene and of course i don't know enough and maybe you do of the recyclability when it comes to a starch based film uh, whether how recyclable it is but then again you know it gets into the complexity with how would you segregate a polyfilm from a yeah, starch yeah. film but how do you how do you see uh the the petroleum based substances because they again have a similar issue you have 30 40 years of petroleum left you have a huge the crackers are not easy to sort of uh, yeah. there's a lot of energy that goes in and a lot of chemicals that go in so how do you justify that in your mind uh, in terms of uh, yeah product? i mean it, it, there's no argument to be made in favor of fossil fuels right like fossil fuels are the devil they're like they are the reason why you know the the burning of fuel for energy is why we are in our climate change position that we're in today um where i'll just say like where i think i get hung up is when somebody comes forth and is like well this is the answer corn is the answer um and again i think what we find is that when um when we try to like pin all of our hopes on this uh, a, a material that we haven't given a lot of thought to then we tend to make trade-offs that are you know we tend to rock peter to paul and it actually ends up being worse for the planet and so that's really where i come in and so when it comes to plastic in general um i make a couple arguments which is one is like how do you use as much recycled plastic as possible like there's there's so much plastic waste in the world can we start making it into stuff instead of letting it float around in our oceans <laughs> so that's like a big thing is like how do we make as much with recycled content as possible um and so that's like been the biggest driver so when we first started eco enclose um there was no at all recycled polyfilm at all um we were able to start at 88% recycled polyfilm now our polymer is 100% recycled it has 50% post consumer waste and in the last 3 years there's a lot of 100% recycled polymers out there. And so if I think about like in the last 7 years there's all this recycled plastic being used whereas 10 years ago the extruders and the converters were like oh you can't actually make a poly bag out of recycled plastic like that to me is real progress. And so that's like so if I think about we've set this vision for how do you make packaging all packaging out of packaging um I try to think of the lens of how are we is the step getting us closer to it so i don't and and then i think okay well let's say that we have a bubble mailer that's 50% recycled so that means 50% of it is made out of waste which we feel good about 50% of it is made out of fossil fuels i don't feel very good about that at all and so then i think okay with that 50% that remains my ideal would be to make that out of waste so i'm pushing our extruder i'm pushing our converter how do we get more and more recycled content into it and then i'm thinking well can you make up the balance with inputs um you know sugarcane is an interesting example that has pros and cons like brassicum has pros and cons and brassicum is a drop in bioplastic that can basically look and feel like polyethylene it's a recycle it's recyclable So I'm like I'm weighing all the nuances of using that instead of fossil fuels and what are all the other sort of bioplastic inputs that can take the place of any time I have to use virgin. So again my hierarchy is maximizing recycled content and when virgin content is necessary how do I make sure that I'm doing what I can to make it more and more sustainable over time. Absolutely and I love the way you think because it's just so nuanced and well thought of want to be a part of the next big thing in the compostable packaging space check out gcahub.com g c a h u b.com create your free account and connect with others in the sustainable packaging industry on gcahub you can exchange ideas network solutions 
problems and learn through curated resources. Let's connect for impact. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Uh, what about what about the cost side? Does that does that come up a lot in conversations in terms of customers? Because I clearly see that you have a target towards more niche customers, and like you see, say, say eco allies. So they're clearly thinking from a similar lens or perspective. Uh, but is that a struggle at any time? Because presumably you would have a little bit of a cost differentiation just based on the amount of effort you're doing and the amount of you know lenses you're trying to put in so and of course sourcing would be a bigger challenge so so you know does that does that hamper uh, your business in any way or are you finding enough receptivity when it comes to costing yeah i mean yeah cost is like it's number one, two, or three, right? In every conversation we have, it's really important. Um, and in some ways, right, those large, the growing enterprise brands that we work with, especially those that, um, you know, a lot of times we'll work with brands and maybe they start out at, they start working with us when they're five employees and then they become 50 employees and then they get venture funding or something like that. And all of a sudden they're like, I got to cut costs everywhere I can. So costs come up all the time. Um, I, I say a couple of things about costs, which is in no world, is sustainable packaging ever going to, or eco or friendly or packaging ever going to be the cheapest option, right? You can always go to Alibaba or or Amazon even and find something cheaper. Um, so we have to start from the lens of like, does this company actually want their packaging to stand for something? Once you've sort of checked off that box, then we can actually work with brands pretty well to say, okay, how can we get, how can we meet your budget as well as possible? Um, once you recognize like you're not trying to get the lowest price option ever, but you want to manage your budget. So an example how this could play out would be, um, okay, some brands will come to us and say, I want a really premium paper mailer, and we've got this sort of thicker paperboard option that's very premium, very beautiful. And then we've got like the thinner option that is a little bit more utility. And those are pretty distinct in their cost structure. Um, other things that come to us, people come to us and they're like, I really need a, I want to work with your 100% recycled poly mailers, but I can't. We might down-gauge them to a two mil. Right now our poly mailer is a 2.5 mil. So there's like a lot of opportunity we have to to work with people. And that what we love is when they come to us and they're like, we want sustainable packaging. This is our per unit budget. Like, how can we meet that? Because then we have the ability to play with materials, play with thickness, uh, play with volumes to get to that budget. Yeah, that's interesting. So what is what is the story behind no external investors? So is that is that something that is uh, that is consciously decided between your husband and you? Or is that is that just like how do how does that how does that work because we see everybody and you come from a strong both of you come from a strong business background so is that a conscious decision that you guys have taken or is that just a yeah, step in the journey that question. it is very conscious but it is not permanent i guess like i'm not gonna sit here and say we'll never take external funding that's not in our plans but the decision to date has been pretty conscious i'd say maybe two two reasons one is like we don't we're not we're not here we're not a buy. We're not. Um, we're not trying to liquidate and sell. Like we're not trying to. We're not going for some big exit here. You know, we are family owned, and our current vision is that in ten years, like this is still owned by our family. That you know, we are able to. You know, hopefully, we have you know, quadrupled in size, but that we're still sort of family owned. And so that's one point, right? Where the second you take outside funding, you are building to sell, and that's not what we're in this for. Um, and then I think the other thing, like I am. Um, I'm sure you could probably hear this, like, 
perhaps Kyle would say that I might be too social, like environmental justice or, or environmentally oriented. Um, and I, that's the passion. Like that's why I'm in this business. Um, I love our customers. I love our company. I love our employees and I love doing what we can to try to make slightly better decisions for the planet. And I have never, I've yet to find an outside investor that I've said, okay, well, if you come in and fund us, you're not going to be looking for me to scale as quickly as possible. And you're not going to be pushing me to make different decisions. Um, and so for now, like those are, those are where I get joy and I don't really want that joy to be hampered. <laughs> so it's a little bit selfish, I guess. Um, you know, there might be times, it, you know, for example, we're about to, we are likely in and entering perhaps like a more pronounced recession than I've ever run a business through. And so could it be that we have to take some outside funding to get us through that? Maybe. I'm not going to pretend that there's no world in which we wouldn't take outside funding. But to date, the decision has been very um, conscious. Yeah, and uh, but if you look at so so this ties in well with uh, the longer term plans for Eco and Close. Uh, is this is scaling an important thing for you? And in terms of impact yeah. as well, you know, like as you scale, what I realize also in in my time at work is that the real impact can only happen if you can really because the size of the challenge is so big so if you if you're not going to scale it's going to be a great business it's going to definitely give us a lot of satisfaction but maybe the impact that we are trying to make will not be as significant so does that is that a question that you uh, think about and if you think about the next five or ten years where would you like to take you and close and of course funding may or may not be needed and you know you can you can work whichever way but scaling and then you know uh, if there is uh, possibilities in terms of funding when it comes to scaling is that is that something that you think about yeah it's a great question so maybe i'll i'll have, a, I have two i've just had a paper pen and paper so i could write down the things i want to say the first thing is like yes we are we've grown you know we've 20 20 x more than 20 x in size since we bought the business like so we're very committed to growth um we see our growth very focused on you know, if we, when we acquire, um, I would say, nimble brands that have a lot, you know, like Patagonia's, Prana's, like those are the types of brands that are making an impact or we can work with them because they are not caught up in the sort of like larger bureaucracy that you might see with some of the really largest brands, but those are brands that are making an impact. And so when we work with brands like that, we know we're having scale and impact. And so as many of brands in that sort of category as possible that we can work with, that's going to help us get scale. They're going to help us get better. Like we're going to, it's just the, per, those are the types of brands that are like the perfect marriage for us. And so it's really fascinating and wonderful is like we can scale our business with them without taking on a dime, right? It's just like, you know, it's, it's a self-sustaining business model where I think funding is perhaps most interesting is if there were nascent technologies that we had to invest more capital than we have just from running our business. So Algae Inc. is an example of a technology that we invested quite a bit of our capital in, but it was capital that we had. It wasn't more than we could afford. And so we invested you know, quite a bit though in commercializing it and helping them go to market. Let's say a new technology came on, like a new idea came on market and it's like, okay, in order to scale this, you need much more money than Eco Inclus has available. And if that ever happened, I think that would maybe be a really interesting um, catalyst for us to start seeking out outside funding. And I'm sure with uh, with evolution and time, you might find the right partners in terms of funding because there are there are totally. many coming in, totally. and you might find the right level of dilution as well. You yeah. may not dilute more than ten, fifteen percent, and that's that's fine. And you know, so so yeah, so, yeah, I yeah. Hope, 
Yeah, well, it's, inter it's interesting. Like, dilution has not actually come up in my brain as much because, you know, I think, like, with funding, one gets scale. So dilution is maybe less, but I think the right partner would be really interesting and the yeah. right goals. So if somebody was like, here's $10 million, I, I would be like, okay, here's uh, most of what I would want to do with it would be around sales and marketing, which would be really exciting. But I think more exciting than that would be like, oh, here's $10 million, go forth and invest in as many eco-friendlier materials as possible to try to get one of these technologies to click and to really change the game from a sustainability perspective and packaging. Yeah, yeah. And then think that's that's just your heart, right? You, you're constantly looking to make a bigger impact. So, so I love the, I love totally, that. How would totally. I use the money? I'm not just going to do my scaling, but I'm going to look for more and more interesting ideas to sort of build on and then that's so beautiful to, to totally. hear and if we got it right like that would also win be a win for the business too right if we if, if that happened if we could come out with like a truly circular technology i mean we would also be crushing it from a profitability and growth perspective but it's you know that's what we're in business oh, absolutely for. and 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 Taking the art towards a closure, I'd see our time. Uh, but um, uh, but one of the things that was interesting, and I mentioned it right at the beginning, that I'm going to come back to this. So uh, I have to make sure that I listen to you on that. Is something that's fascinating. Is also not just not just that you're conscious on what you're doing in terms of products, but also how you're doing it. And in another. A recording of yours, you talked a lot about culture and how you're trying to build that within the organization. And you mentioned it in passing, even during our conversation in terms of family and how your husband and you bring the family into the business in both ways. So so just, just in brief, talk to us a little more about what that means to you, uh, the engagement of people who work with you, and uh, how you're trying to make sure that that sort of alignment builds uh, from where you are and, you know, going forward as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like a whole podcast in and of itself then. <laughs> um, so I think, well, I mean, I think it probably comes from a selfish lens, which is like I am in the building. This is, you know, this is my home away from home. I come here every single day and I want this to be a place I want to be, right? And so it's like, for me to be, like, I want this to be a community of people that I want to engage with. And so when you look at it with that lens, like, what does it look like to build a workplace culture that I can't wait to be at? Like, where I walk in, I'm like, oh, I'm uplifted to be here today. And so a lot of our the steps that we've taken probably come from that lens. Um, so a couple of things I guess I'll share is that I think we hope to be a place where people can say like, okay, they're growing in their careers, but they've also found community. Um, so I would say most people here would, would tell you that they found some of their best friends here at work. They have a lot of them have found their roommates here at work. And that's, um, that's important to us where it's like in a world that's getting lonelier and lonelier. Um, and, you know, I know there's a high priority placed on virtual work these days. Our statement is a little bit of like, listen, people have to be physically here because of the work that we do. Let's make this a place that is like the antithesis of loneliness, right, and, and build that. That's one thing. I think the other is like, can we build a world of eco allies? That's what we always say internally. Like, I don't, yeah, it's almost like, can you come here and go to eco college almost? And then when you leave here, because everybody, you know, most people leave eventually, this is where have we created a, like a community of like eco ambassadors out there that are trying to make the world a better place. Um, and then the other thing that I really love about eco enclosed is that we've got warehouse manufacturing workers alongside um, professional, you know, administrative workers. And I think people here would say like, it's been a real 
blessing for them to have that like sort of diversity in their workplace relationships. Um, and so we institute a lot of things that force people to be connected um, sort of across classes and across functions that probably don't happen in most people's everyday lives. So we've got like a morning meeting and each person has to stand up and share well every day a different person stands up and shares like a quote a call out a favorite customer etc and so they kick off the day in this way um, and then we have things like job swap where people have to go and like take over somebody else's job for half a day and see what that looks like so there's all these things that we put in place to create um, to force i would say collaboration across teams and across structures that oftentimes will, would never in otherwise like day-to-day -day life ever interact I think people find that to be a blessing. So I don't know, I guess in some ways it's like we've tried to create a place here that's hopefully like a place of excellence where you could do your best work, you can grow professionally, and you can also feel like you found community. That's so beautiful to hear. And, 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 and I made a... We're not always, we're not always successful at <laughs> no, it. So. it this is, this, <laughs> this is, perfect, this is an absolutely, Saloni, an ongoing journey. And you and I both know it. You'll never be perfect. Yeah, totally. But but you know, it's the totally. intention again. And totally. like, uh, like as I was listening to that, I was like, I'm going to have to visit you next time I'm in Colorado just to just experience what you're trying to <laughs> it's create. Fun. There. Yeah, we have a good we have a good we have good people. I really I mean I think it's like it's like I just really love them. Like I really love our workers. They're really cool. Um, I learn a lot from them and hopefully they learn a lot from me. So Saloni, this has been such a delightful conversation and I have to take you towards my final question. And uh, it's always <laughs> wonderful to hear views on this final question and i'm sure yours will be an interesting one so what does good garbage mean to you to me good garbage would be no garbage i think everybody probably says something like that but what i mean by that is that every time you had something in your hand that you were done with that it would go it would become something useful and so if that was an apple core it would go into a compost and enrich the soils and if that was like a piece of paper then it would become a piece of paper in its next life like that everything that was at its end of its useful truly useful life we would look at and think what are the resources within this item and how should they be best utilized in its next life and that would be like the world of the garbage. Super. Thank you so much. You would actually be amazed at the variety of answers we get. It's not it's not similar. So but but thank you so much, Saloni, for taking the time, for bringing in so much passion and purpose. Your energy is infectious uh, and it's beautiful to see the kind of detailing that you go into in order to provide what you're trying to provide. And I wish you all the best uh, to grow eco and close and uh, really, really keep making an impact uh, that you're doing. And I just hope that you keep doing it in a bigger and bigger uh, scale and better and better products. So thank you so much for taking the time, being on the show and chatting with us. Oh, thank you. This is a pleasure. You're a joy to talk to. I can't, I wish I could interview you because you have so much to share as well. So maybe that will be next time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Good Garbage Podcast. Follow us on social media to never miss an episode. Links are in the description below. I'm your host, Vedh Krishna. See you next time.